So therefore, be proud to be a decent American rather than be just a wanker whipping up fear. Because you're supposed to tackle people, you're supposed to hit people at pace and hit them hard as part of the game. It's not chess we're playing. I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. The double champ does what the f he wants. Hello everybody and welcome along to chapter 93 of What's the Story podcast. My name is Danny Murray. My name is Graham Merrill Merrigan. You. <laughs> it's gas because we recorded 94. Yeah. And I didn't say it and you, you were saying you never do it. Yeah. And then we did it in 93. I know. But so you're going to look stupid at 94. Well you've just told them haven't you? Yeah but so what? So you know. What's that saying? Bring back the curtain. Peeling back the curtain. <laughs> yeah, being back to court. Um, yeah, this is the award winner wants to start the podcast, little old WTS pod. We're coming to you from the fabulous and famous Fitzpatrick Castle Hotel, which is where we will be coming to you from May 18th in front of a live audience, along with some famous friends and faces. Um, tickets are on sale now. A good chunk of them are gone. Um, we have surpassed the 1,000 euro mark in terms of uh, financials raised for the Brilliant Suicide or Survive. Lovely. So, uh, Thank thanks, you. Thanks to everybody who has uh, so far dipped into their pocket and supported it. Um, if you haven't, what are you doing? People texting me asking me to keep their tickets, but I can't because no, it's a link. No, we're not keeping tickets. We're not. We don't have on. physical tickets to keep, though. Get Just get onto the website and buy them. That's, you know what I mean? We, we're not. No, come on now. You're being silly. I don't like when people do that. Stop being silly. If I had physical tickets, I'd keep them. But I would I not. I'd tell them now. It's first come, first served. Well, that's the difference between you and I. Well, that's why stuff rests in your account and it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> See a little brown envelope sticking out of your back pocket yeah, of there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm making money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd, I'll get the touts outside on May 18th. Yeah, I've, I've been on Seatwave keeping an eye, <laughs> making sure you're not selling that. <laughs> um, yeah, look, lads, May 18th up here in Fitzpatrick's. Uh, as I said, like a good chunk of the tickets are gone already. So if you are looking to go, get on it now. Just search uh, wts100.eventbrite.ie. That's all you need to type into your Google bot and you'll find it. Or you can go to facebook.com, wtspodireland, and you'll find links there. wtspod.com, you'll find links there. Look, it's everywhere. Just get on it. Yeah, beautiful people. And thank you very much for the support. Fitzpatrickcastle.com. Looking forward to it. Yeah, we'll have a great raffle as well. Great raffle, great prizes. If anyone wants to give a raffle prize or know anyone that wants to support us, give us a shout. Yeah, by all means, you'll get a, a plug on the night, and that will be available to download in to the thousands and thousands of people who listen from around the world. Me and Graham had a quite a tense conversation off air. <laughs> we we have uh, severe disagreements, and we've had a tense conversation, and now we're staring each other down. Yeah, we are. Similar to Roman Reigns and The Undertaker at WrestleMania 23. Oh, no. Don't mention that. Don't mention it. Poor Taker. I'm Roman Reigns right now, man. <laughs> you are. You're always Roman Ma- Reigns to me. You are going to destroy Political, you, current affairs, world affairs opinions <laughs> don't uh, agree. Yeah. We don't. You just raise your voice. You're like, a, you're like, you're like an English teacher. That's preposterous. When you don't give in your homework and you just make me shit the bed. I just raise my voice. I don't shout at you. 
No, I just you present. get very authoritative. Not yeah. shouting is wrong. Authoritative. Yeah, because I have facts backing me up. But you didn't show me any facts. Well, I didn't need to show you facts. I told you to go off and get them yourself. <laughs> yeah, and I tried and there was nothing there. You didn't try hard That you alleged. You didn't anyway, try hard it doesn't enough. matter. Which are little leftist ways. <laughs> <laughs> the mad thing is, we probably agree on like 90% of things. It's yeah. just that little bit and it just... Ah, come on, we antagonize each other for a No, hour. it's you we're going to antagonize Grant. I never want to antagonize anyone, or you. We love it's always you. Yeah, I do love winding you up a bit. It's great crap. I'm prepared to say what the subject is about. I'm not prepared to say, uh, talk about it, because I need to get me facts no, I, up. I don't think we should even say what the subject is about. We don't need to go into it. Yeah, we'll get people asking us. And yeah, no, it's, we, we could be opening a can of worms. Yeah. A can of worms. Um, we have a good one for you this week, lads. Um, real treat after our conversation with um, Colonel Randall Larson a couple of weeks ago a number of people got in touch to say cheers lads absolutely bricking it now <laughs> this one isn't going to help you <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be worse <laughs> oh man I'm telling you if you hadn't bought stocks and bomb shelters you're going to after this one you, you, our guest is familiar quite familiar on RTE yeah um, TV3 yeah. any any kind of news agency is writing mm-hmm. as in journal.ie yeah. on occasion Irish Times um, Dr. Tom Clonan Dr. Tom Clonan security expert media lecturer extraordinaire he comes um, out when there's a terrorist attack yeah that's actually kind of what he, how he put it to us they yeah. kind of they come calling for me when something bad has happened yeah like, yeah he knows but, when his phone's up and that exactly, atrocity yeah. has occurred um, Unfortunately, we've, we've been trying to get him for quite a while, but just he's a busy, busy man. So it's it was great to actually sit down with him. Um, he also has a son who's a wheelchair user. He does. So we talked to him a little bit about that as well. Um, frightening, I would say, and absolutely outrageous in an angering kind of way mm. about kind of the, the experience he outlined for his son Alan. Yeah. Um, but you'll hear that obviously as you listen to Doctor Tom talking. His his background, um, he's a retired Irish Army captain. He'd done a couple of uh, tours of duty, that's what they call them. In the lab. In the lab. And uh, he wrote two books. I referenced one of them in the interview. Um, Whistleblower, Soldier, Spy. Absolutely amazing book. If you hop onto Amazon or if you'll see it in a bookshop, get it. I think it came out maybe about three or four years ago, maybe a little bit longer. Um, but it's done almost in like a first-hand perspective, almost like... A timeline, like obviously he wrote it retrospectively, but the way it's written is almost day by day. It's it's brilliant, brilliant, and it gives a great insight. Something I'm raging we didn't get to talk to him about just because time ran out. Um, As it always does. Yeah, the whole whistleblower thing and where that comes from. Mm. He was the whistleblower for the Irish Army essentially. Yeah, in yeah. he it's better quality, wasn't it? Yeah, he uh, he basically was like there are severe malpractices against female cadets and colleagues and that thing and that kind of thing and it's funny um, that he'd a number of recommendations were introduced based on his his publishing it's funny that he'd become a, a whistleblower about equality and then later in life he's still fighting for equality for his son yeah absolutely yeah and he's a man who talks a lot of sense find it very hard to kind of disagree with things that he was saying mm. um, and he puts the points across I think very succinctly he put the points across um he he compared them very well to si- well not similar but you know other campaigns that took place and kind of drew the narrative from them and applied it and it, it's impossible to argue like mm. 
Um, I don't want to steal his thunder. I'll, I'll let you hear that from, from the, the horse's mouth, so to speak, because um, the second he said it, I was like, when you put it like that, yeah, there's no argument, like, mm. no whatsoever. But anyway, shall we just... Go to the interview. Absolutely. Dr. Tom Clonan. We're joined this week by Dr. Tom Clonan. Um, t- you've probably read Tom's stuff on the Journal and the Irish Times. Of that He's out there whenever there's a, an incident <laughs> in the world. Um, and his full-time gig then as a, a lecturer in media. And he does campaigning for, for disability and stuff like that as well because of your son. Um, but look, first of all, thanks very much for coming into us, Tom. Thanks uh, for having me. I'm t- it's great to be here. So we're... Uh, it's been a bit of a mad few weeks, I suppose, with attacks and that kind of thing. So, I suppose do we do we kick off there? <laughs> yeah, which so is the whole probably the Westminster attack. I suppose was the most recent one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of coverage of these so-called lone wolf attacks. Yeah, in Europe, and it, it's a, a a kind of a, a way a tactic, a terror tactic that Islamic State specifically asked for um, about a year ago. Um, Islamic State spokesman, a guy called Muhammad al-Adnani, um, said, and I'm quoting directly from him now, he said, uh, attack the enemy in their heartland. Take a knife uh, and cut him. Take a, a rock and smash his head in. And take a car and drive it into the unbelievers. So what Islamic State realised around about uh, a year ago was that the Iraqi security forces in Iraq were beginning to retake um, towns like Mosul and others along the Tigris-Euphrates uh, river highways where Islamic State had got into Iraq. So they begin to take back ground. And in Syria itself, they were being closed down by the Russians and supporting uh, Assad's forces. So they're now actually closed down as we speak uh, to the city of Mosul, in Iraq and the city of Raqqa in Syria. And the Americans have been pouring troops in. So we have US and British troops in Syria fighting Islamic State in the outskirts of uh, Raqqa and Mosul. So the Islamic State went from having a territory about the size of Britain or France just over a year ago with millions of people occupied. Now they're down to two suburbs in two cities. So they know the game is up. And... there are believed to be about 8,000 fighters left, of whom about 2,000 are, are suspected to be European Union citizens. So what Islamic State are saying is, OK, our caliphate is almost finished, but we want you to go back to your countries and create havoc. So this is we're going to see a change in the type of attack. I don't think we're going to see the kind of planned, coordinated attacks that you saw at the Bataclan, where you had shooters in the Bataclan theatre and out at the cafes and trying to get into the soccer stadium all at the same time. Yeah. You know, large cell-like operations, like you saw in Brussels this time last year, where an attack in the airport and at the same time a simultaneous attack on the subway. You're not going to see that. What you're going to see is uh, a move towards individuals doing like what we saw in Westminster Bridge, a low low tech, wasn't it? Yeah, so they they and within actually, uh, I think it was four months of Muhammad Al Adnani's Adnani's appeal for radicalized uh, people to to drive cars 
into uh, innocent civilians. There were four different attacks in four different countries involving vehicles. There was one in Canada. Uh, Canada, one, really? Yeah, yeah, one in um, the Nice attack on the Promenade des Anglais, uh, the German Christmas market attack. Yeah, yeah. And now we have the one uh, in Westminster. Now, what I would say... And we were talking about this before I came in. I am mm. from Fingless. I'm a proud Dubliner, although yeah. I am a Southside boy now. <laughs> um, but I think we really need to look at Grafton Street, Henry, Henry Street, yeah. those big pedestrianised areas. As a minimum in Dublin, immediately they should put, you know, those retractable bollards to stop cars going in and out. Because whilst I don't think uh, an Islamic State style attack is more likely than previously but it's still a distinct possibility and we have to take those kind of minimum steps to because it's so easy to do something like this yeah and then if you look at the profile of the people who carried out those attacks most of them had no intelligence profile they might have had a criminal profile but no intelligence profile uh, and just acted out of rage uh, and and did something unpredictable so that could happen in dublin and like i said uh, islamic state are always looking for weaknesses and if they identify a place where you have very large crowds of, of pedestrians without any protection, bollards uh, or big concrete blocks as they do around Westminster, then mm. they'll exploit that. So we have to be, yeah, you know, we shouldn't be so weak in our security and awareness that it makes us a kind of a provocative target. Are, yeah. are we, in any way, we, a couple of weeks ago we had um, a US, a retired US Air Force colonel, um, Randall Larson on, and he's an expert in bioweapons, and we are kind of saying to him, like, we're, we're a small island nation. Are we better suited or are we completely goosed if some sort of major bio attack happens? Like So in this case, you're saying we're not at any more risk, but are we in any way ready or suited to responding to an attack? Well, the Minister for Justice, uh, Francis Fitzgerald, has always taken the line of, uh, oh, don't worry, there's nothing to see. Uh, move along, move along. But she has been forced to admit that there are at least 20, but I, I believe as many as 30 or 34 Irish citizens, uh, passport holders, who have gone to Syria and Iraq to fight with groups like Jawad al-Nusra or Islamic State. Right. So that means, uh, you know, when you look at our population, 4 million south of the border, 1.5, 1.7 north of the border, we have the same participation rate per head of population in Islamic State as Britain. Wow. So Ireland, wow. per head of population, would have a, would have a high participation rate yeah. um, in the activities of Islamic State. Those Irish citizens, uh, two or three of them have been killed. We, we know about uh, Khalid Kelly, yeah. who yeah. killed himself in a suicide vehicle attack in Mosul uh, just before Christmas. So we know some of them have been killed. But those guys and girls are going to start coming home now because the caliphate is closed down. And we can't, we can't ignore that or uh, turn a blind eye to it or hope, you know, inshallah, that nothing will happen. But So I think the authorities here have a duty of care towards our citizens to try and identify these people, interview them, uh, interact with them, find out what activities they were engaged in. Did they carry out war crimes? Were they involved in atrocities? Because Human Rights Watch and the United Nations... Amnesty International all agree that all sides to the conflict in Syria and Iraq have carried out um, war crimes, including, mm. you know, torture and killing of prisoners, 
uh, rape and so on. So this is the environment these Irish citizens are coming back from. So, you know, we need to be absolutely certain that they're not intending to follow the instructions that Islamic State are giving them now very explicitly. Go home, carry out attacks in your in your home countries. Um, I mean, I hope it doesn't happen, but I would be of the view that we must take the, the minimum, you know, those kind of minimum precautions, putting in place measures to protect, you know, large groups of pedestrians, because that's that's what we're seeing happening. You yeah, can, yeah you can, across Europe, yeah. You know, and we responded to threats during the Troubles um, by taking certain precautions. I mean, I remember in the 80s, and maybe some of the people listening to this might remember back then, but when you're going into Dublin Airport, uh, you know, as you went in the front door, like into the uh, the, the check-in areas, you were actually swept with a, um, a metal no, detector before you went in there. Well, so, you know, Ireland has a history of recognising threat. And it doesn't take much. Small things would make things um, a little more safe. But I think Irish citizens, you know, we're different from other Europeans in that when you think about it, Westminster Bridge was an Irish person, a woman. It was amongst the victims there. Uh, we had three Irish tourists were essentially executed at gunpoint on a beach in Tunisia last year. Yeah. We've had Irish people killed in 7-7, in the Bali bombings in um, 9-11. We had Irish citizens shot in the Bataclan Theatre in Paris. We had Irish people caught up in the subway attack in Brussels uh, and in the airport last year. Uh, I heard reports from Sky News, you know, we've eyewitness accounts and the people giving the accounts were at Irish accents. So the idea that we're immune from mm. the threat of Islamic State is 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 you know is facile i think sometimes here i'm upset by it that you know very often people like the commissioner uh, noreen o'sullivan or francis fitzgerald or you know our current Taoiseach, <clears throat> they've a, a tendency to play down the threat and to be very patronizing and say things like oh that's nonsense nothing could possibly happen you know that's not uh Leadership, You know, we really need to be realistic about the threat, not to overplay it. And of course, the most important thing in all of this is we have to stand side by side with our Muslim brothers and sisters here. Because, you know, I remember in the 80s as a young Irish guy going over and back from the UK, we were subject to the kind of hostile scrutiny. Everybody thought because you had an Irish accent, you were a terrorist. And you and I know it was a very small, very, very small minority of people who engaged in acts of terrorism and murder and mayhem. And it's the same in the Muslim community. And they're the principal victims of Islamic State's terror. Yeah. And Islamic State's their aim is to create ethnic tensions in Europe. So we have to be really uh, proactive and stand shoulder to shoulder with our Muslim brothers and sisters. But at the same time, we have to, you know, have a minimum level of security. Not, yeah. not to, sorry, Graham. Yeah, no. you know the precautions you were saying that uh, the Minister for Justice should take when um, the jihadi fighters return home to Ireland. Do you think that that approach could possibly entice the people that come home? If we were to interview them, should it be a, an approach where we operate some surveillance or actually bring them in for interview? And, and oh, I think we need to interact with them very yeah. proactively. We need to say, well, you know, what did you do? How, how how are you? <laughs> yeah, you know, like even if even if these guys and girls did nothing, like let's say for example, it's like uh, you know Irish people going Irish citizens have a history of going on the missions to Africa, you know, to help people who are you know a lot of mm. a lot of young Muslims would see jihad not as an armed struggle but as a an act of charity or mercy where they know their fellow Muslims are suffering, they go out and try to help maybe help in a refugee camp 
or assist with the distribution of aid. You know, and I'm sure that Irish citizens and passport holders have gone into those areas to do precisely that. But we know that in those areas, um, human rights abuses, war crimes are being committed casually Mm. on a massive scale. And the research on people who are exposed to the, not perpetrate them, but exposed to them, shows that one third will develop uh, what's called chronic stress reaction or combat stress reaction, which, if untreated, makes them more prone to aggression, violence, hypervigilance, leads to domestic violence and uh, assault, uh, substance abuse, habitual heavy drinking. So even if these guys and girls are coming back, even if they were out there, you know, helping to dig wells, as opposed to being involved in what Khalid Kelly was involved in, which is the actual uh, slaughter of the innocents, then, you know, we have a, we absolutely must screen them and interface with them and interact with them and, and find out, you know, what supports do they need or if necessary, um, should they be returned to another jurisdiction to face trial for, for war crimes? Not to attempt a scaremonger or anything like that, but are we better off looking at a case of when, not if, or is it that kind of big a threat? Well, you know, from my time in the army, you should always prepare for when. Okay. Um, you know, when when we did the thousands and thousands of cash escorts that are still being done today, Irish troops are trained with the view that we are going to be attacked. And that is the reason why they are, if you like, um, they have an operational posture that, uh, if you like, discourages an attack. If you, you you can't take the approach in security planning of well this might never happen so let's you know you you always prepare with the mindset or the view that this is going to happen now how will I deal with it in relation to the terror threat we know because of the lone wolf phenomenon that you can't prevent attacks anymore it's impossible for the state security intelligence or police services to identify everybody. Who, who is going to... Especially if there's no profile. Yeah, yeah. you know, if they're going to go postal, to mm. use that expression from, from the United States, you know, just be, decide to become a mass shooter or take a car. I mean, I could take my car on the way home now and drive it up onto the footpath. How, yeah. how could any anyone surveil that or be aware of it? So we know we can't prevent the attacks. The name of the game now across Europe is to close down an attack as quickly as possible. So in Westminster, uh, within minutes of him driving into tourists on Westminster Bridge, within literally minutes of him doing that, crashing the car, stabbing the policeman, he was shot. And that ended the attack. In the Bataclan Theatre, an ordinary patrol cop was called to the scene. He went in with his sidearm and shot one of the uh, terrorists who was up on the stage at that point. Um, And that detonated his suicide vest and, and the other shooters ran up onto the first floor. And when that cop intervened, that ended the, the shooting. There, there were no more people shot after that cop's intervention. Mm. Now, in the German market, Christmas market attack, again, it was ordinary cops that stopped the attack. Promenade des Anglais, ordinary cops stopped the attack within minutes. So what we're learning from the changing and evolving terror threat is that you must be ready and configured to meet the threat immediately, locally, and and put an end to it, put a stop to it. That's that's the name of the game. Can you end it quickly? Now, 
what would happen in Dublin if uh, somebody drove a vehicle onto Grafton Street or up, up Henry Street or Mary Street? Who's going to stop that? It's going to be a young guard, a uh, young man or a woman, and all they'll have is a high-vis vest. And I know the guards are under a lot of hostile scrutiny at the moment. They're in I trouble. Say, yeah. but, but they will do it. And, they'll yeah. try, and, and we owe it to our citizens and we owe it to our young frontline guardy that we're actually better prepared and better equipped to deal with those kind of threats. Do we have the resources? Well, because of the cuts and austerity, and this is something that the Garda Representative Association, the Association of Garda Sergeants and Inspectors, and even the Commissioner herself have recognised. The Commissioner herself has said that Angarda Siakana is about 20 years behind the curve in terms of information technology, communications and so on. Uh, so we know that the, the, the guards need a bit of investment. And so do our other first-line responders. Mm. For example, paramedics and ambulances. If you so, look at the footage of Westminster Bridge, you'll see people being treated at the side of the road, by met, not by paramedics, but by doctors. Because yeah. they're trained. They actually have boots on the ground exercises where they go out and train for these. You know, in other words, they don't say if, they say when. And then when it happens, they save a lot of lives by simply being ready for it and having thought about it. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's on that basis. Like we, we owe it to our citizens to, to be prepared in the eventuality of something like that. Or even, you know, a, a natural or a, ma- you know, you know, a yeah. mass casualty incident out in the M50 involving vehicles or a bus goes on fire. Like we owe it to our citizens to have that basic minimum level of preparedness and training. And, pre- and also... Um, Irish people need to be aware of the threat because Irish citizens have been victims, whether it's in in North Africa, in the Middle East, uh, in European capitals. All of the other European Union backpackers know the threats. When you go to England, you'll see signs up everywhere in supermarkets and in shops and hotels, run, hide, tell in the event of a terrorist attack. It's the same in France, same in Germany. So when you go down to the Greek islands or... Anywhere in your holidays, you're you're with you know other nationalities, and the difference between the Irish and the others is that the others know the threat and know what to do in the event of an attack, and the Irish don't. Yeah, it's going. It's it's food for thought anyway. Yeah, it's just it's just basic. Is is there an end to it? Like, what what's Islamic State? What what what's the goal? Like, just to cause mayhem. Well, I think we're entering a period of, unfortunately, um, I think we're entering a period of conflict. I'll see. I'd say with um, Vladimir Putin in Moscow and President Trump in the White House, I think we'll see um, conventional com- co- conflict. And when I say conventional, I don't, I don't mean that in a good way. Yeah. But I see we'll see large-scale conflict. There's a possibility of it in Europe, in Central and Eastern Europe. Um, certainly Iran will provoke um, a White House administration at some point in the same way that North Korea has by firing missiles out uh, yeah. towards Japanese territory. So, you know, we're going to see conflict in the next uh, four, or if he gets a second term, eight years, um, That on a scale that probably hasn't been seen since, uh, in a small way, Gulf War One or, or, you know, we're going to see real international conflict on a, on, a, on a scale and on a level that we haven't seen before. Or we haven't seen for quite some time. So, like, obviously, the, the examples of Syria and that kind of thing, and, and the Middle East, obviously, has been the, the the almost, for the want of a better phrase, the hotbed of this kind of activity for the last number of years. So, as I said, that that's probably going to we're going to see that maybe in Europe, 
but the antagonist being between Trump and Putin, and that's where the major Yeah, conflict. I mean, look, the, 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 the conflict in Europe, or sorry, the conflict in the Middle East, which yeah. has led to the largest movement of refugees since World War II, we've something like five million people internally displaced and another million on the road, like literally walking to Europe to try yeah. and escape. That, that was a, that, that has become a regional conflict. So it was started by the US and British, Don, uh, George Bush and Tony Blair, you know, this unilateral preemptive strike against Saddam Hussein. And it, it had all of these unintended, unexpected outcomes. Uh, Iraq collapsed, but you have the rise of Shia Muslim hegemony from Tehran through to Baghdad, Damascus and Beirut. And this terrifies Sunni Islam. So all the Gulf states, the Saudis, the Qataris, the Kuwaitis, the Turks are terrified of this rise in in Shia Islam and with all of their really experienced combat arms like the Iranian Republican Guard, the Hezbollah, active in Syria and Iraq as we speak. And the Saudis and other Gulf state Sunni Muslims know that Iran is about to go nuclear. And as soon as Iran goes nuclear, and they will in the next, you know, three to five years, then you'll see a nuclear arms race throughout the Middle East. Now, as of yesterday, people like Assad and others have been using weapons of mass destruction without any consequence. So if they acquire nuclear weapons in that region, they'll use them. So this is the scenario that that, that we're looking I call it a period of looming conflict. Um, I'm sometimes dismayed... Uh, in in media in that all we ever hear is economic analysis. What are the economic implications of Brexit? What are the economic implications of Trump's presidency? What are the economic implications of Vladimir Putin and his... (laughs) We want to start listening to historians. We want to start getting um, other talking heads to explain to people what the risks are. Um, Like I say... um, Donald Trump, as, as we speak, as we record this interview, Donald Trump has already begun to talk, use rhetoric about um, the chemical attack in Syria, blaming it on equally on President Obama and his, you know, perceived passivity on uh, on the Middle East. Watch the rhetoric that Trump uses about North Korea, Kim Jong Un, um, and on Iran, because as his presidency becomes less and less popular as he becomes less and less able to implement the kind of things that he was promising around Obamacare, around the the Mexican wall, around other things. Watch that guy declare a war to bolster and mobilize US popular support. It's the politics of fear. So what you're seeing internationally is kind of almost like a perfect storm. Um, So will it last forever? No. But I think we're going this phenomenon that is Islamic State um, is prompted by the regional tensions between Shia and Sunni. Islamic State are being bankrolled by Sunni Muslim interests in, in, the, in the Gulf states. It will come to an end eventually, but I think what's going to bring to an end is a big catastrophic event. In other words, a, a major war, which will be bigger than regional, it'll be multi-regional, it'll be probably a global conflict of some sort. And then after that, as has always been the case, it happened twice in the last century, you know, the international powers will kind of come to their senses and it'll reboot and then we'll be off again. And are we only in this kind of serious situation? I know there was tax prior to 
the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war, but that really has kicked it off in terms of resurgence and stuff like that. Yeah, well, look, if you if you look at history, um, the the use of uh, violence against uh, Muslims, whether it's in a former Soviet satellite state such as Chechnya, um, whether it's in Syria, whether it's in the Palestinian Authority, whether it's in Iraq or Afghanistan, the 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 the, the, the amount of people who have been killed, the, the Brookings Institute in Washington, which is a conservative think tank, they wouldn't be a, an anti-American, they wouldn't have anti-American sentiment. They estimate that George Bush's intervention in the Middle East has cost the United States in excess of $14 trillion and has resulted in the deaths of over 1 million people um, directly and many more millions indirectly. So that that, that will have, that that has its, uh, a ripple effect throughout the region. And like I say, uh, I I don't uh, beat the thing to death, but it has also had the outcome of strengthening Iran and strengthening um, Iranian and Shia interests throughout from the Mediterranean in Beirut right through to Central Asia. The, the Russians have have exploited that. They've backed the Iranians and that, that Shia arc of influence, if you like. And the Americans have kind of ham-fistedly rode in behind Sunni interests, which has led to the creation of something like Islamic State. So it's a mess. But... Uh, I'm I'm kind of hoping that maybe some of the regional powers will become more involved, that there is the possibility of some sort of a settlement and then people will return home before it's too late. But, you know, it's wait and see. Yeah, it's no, it is, yeah. And and like we're... 14 trillion dollars. You know, we're, we're at the perif- periphery of it. But I think Irish citizens have to recognise that we have allowed in the last 13 years, um, sorry, 14 years, we're close to the 14th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq, we have allowed um, 2.5 million U.S. troops to pass through Shannon. So, and those troops have been going to um, North Africa, to Sub-Saharan Africa, Trans-Saharan Africa, to Afghanistan and Iraq, and they have they have those two and a half million troops in in what's called the global war on terror have contributed directly to the instability we're seeing now. Have contributed directly to the phenomenon of thousands of refugees drowning in the Mediterranean. So Irish people, like I was saying earlier, Irish people have been victims. So we're not neutral. We're not, no, but Irish people have been victims in all of this, in the terrorist attacks. But we've also played a role in the projection of US power uh, into, the, into the Middle East and, and into North Africa. And we, we just have to be sensible and, and, and realise this. I'm not saying that we should criticise it or protest or do anything like that, but just be aware of it. Mm. And be conscious of the of the role that we're playing, and you know we have as a nation have to decide. In this, we're entering into this period of conflict. Apart from the economic implications, we have to decide what's in our best strategic uh, and diplomatic interests. And that's why I think our neutrality is more important than it has ever been at any point uh, in the history of the state. Let, let's say since. Um, World War Two. Yeah, it's really important but that we hold on to our neutral status. It would be a, a would be attacker say coming home. What we were talking about previously, like looks at all those stats: two and a half million American troops. Surely that will kind of boil their blood a bit. Can can we even like uh, neutrality is key? But I mean, remember the European Union. We 
are friendlier to Western civilization and that kind of thing? Like, can can we realistically claim to be neutral? Uh, well, I think I think we can because we have a unique identity now. As an Irish soldier, as an army officer in the Middle East, I, I saw at first hand how the Irish are abroad, mm. and you know. You, you go on an armoured convoy down the coastal highway uh, from Beirut down to the border with Israel with the French and people will come out and throw stones at the vehicles. Um, they'll open fire on the French vehicles when they pass by the Palestinian refugee camps outside Tyre. And, and, um, whereas when you go out with the Irish, people come out and they want to talk to the Irish, they want to shake hands with the Irish because they don't see us as a threat. They, don't, they see us as being neutral. And, and we have always had a very, very... Um, positive impact on any conflict that we've been involved in you know under the Irish flag as peacekeepers or as peace enforcers so we have a way of dealing with people we tend to try and look for what we have in common with other people so you'll find the Irish in Africa or the Irish you know in uniform in in the Middle East will say well you know the Lebanese are like the Irish because they do x y or z so we have a natural it's part of our national characteristics or cultural identity where we try to find what we have in common with the other person. Oh, you know, the Russians are like us. They love the, the few drinks and the bit of crack. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> we have this tendency mm. to identify what we have in common. Whereas other nationalities, the Americans, for example, will, will often identify what's different. Oh, hey, man, that's, we don't do that stateside. That's completely different. So we have the, a history of uh, impartial, neutral intervention for positive outcomes. Uh, we have a unique way of looking at people and problems. We have our own experience of peace and reconciliation here. So we can be at the table in Europe and tell our German partners and our French partners, you know, don't do that. Don't be so aggressive. Don't be so, uh, you know, uh, quantitatively oriented about what the outcome should be. Don't be in such a hurry. And similarly with the relationship we have with the United States, we can use our neutral status to leverage better approaches and, and better diplomatic, um, if you like, strategies in the world. Whereas if we become aligned and just become part of a military alliance, well, we're going to be very low down on the pecking order. Yeah. We, we lose our unique selling point, as it were. And how, how do you think the conversation with the Kenny and Donald Trump went? Like, would they ha- would he have had one-to-one time with them? Or uh, that, would, would he have brought up anything of uh, significance in uh, terms of defence? I don't know, because I think... Donald Trump is a narcissistic, grandiose individual. It's very difficult to know if you could have a kind of a conversation with him that would lead to the type of outcomes that you'd hope for. He, he, he doesn't strike me as a man who takes constructive or any type of criticism or constructive criticism very well. I think I, I wouldn't be a fan of Enda Kenny at all, but I think he, he, he handled the... Um, the St. Patrick's Day situation probably reasonably well, as best best as could be hoped. Mm. He certainly he certainly didn't make a fool of the Irish people. Mm. You know, he made a good speech. Um, he didn't do that thing which which so provokes somebody like Donald Trump. But I think he got he got his message across in a subtle way, and and that's as much as 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 could be hoped for. Yeah. But I believe that that Donald Trump's uh, because of his. Um, Involvement in the hotel and catering industry with all of his resorts around the world, that he's got a lot of Irish graduates in his kind of senior leadership teams. And I believe there are people close to him with an Irish background. He has a lot of respect for the Irish. He admires our work ethic, our kind of perspective on things. 
Um, so, you know, who knows? There might be a positive influence there. But in terms of what Enda Kenny achieved, I think I think he did re- as, as best as could be expected under difficult circumstances. Um, if we can change pace a little bit, and, and you've touched on it already, but um, obviously your experience from a military point of view and serving overseas on the, the missions there that you mentioned, like the, the peacekeeping or peace enforcing and that kind of thing, Tell us a bit. I know you, you wrote two books, basically that have covered that as well. The, the mm-hmm. second one, um, "Whistleblower Soldier Spy," is absolutely brilliant, by the way. Oh, thanks very um, much. Tell us a little bit about the, the entire experience. I know it's kind of hard to do yeah. in a small well, way. I but. mean, I, I'd split it into two two specific experiences. Uh, I mean, like I said, coming in here, I'm from, I'm from Finglas originally. I grew up in Finglas. Um, I joined the army in the 1980s. Um, because at that point, Ireland was not just an economic basket case, but was a security basket case with the threat posed by, you know, the provisional IRA on the one hand, and then a very, very provocative policy on the island by the British and the British Army, which made the country very, very unstable, uh, potentially. So it was, it, it was an, in, an interesting time to be a member of Oglig Heron, as it was then. Uh, it was a great opportunity for me to sort of, do something completely different you know it wasn't a nine to five routine certainly it was it was a very very different experience so uh after i was commissioned as an officer i served on what were called aid to the civil power operations or counter-terror operations on the islands which were a root routine at the time and then i went overseas to lebanon so that'll be the first exposure for me to what you're seeing now every day on on the tv being being mm. back um when i was in lebanon 95 to 96 it was a very very violent um, deployment, a very, very violent tour of duty, if you want to use that expression, in that Hezbollah stepped up their attacks on the Israeli fire bases, which were, were in our area of operations, to the extent that by the spring of 1996, the Israeli government declared a, a, a punitive operation against the people of South Lebanon called Operation Grapes of Wrath. And it culminated in the deaths of hundreds and hundreds of innocent men, women and children. So we spent uh, weeks, uh, months, from about February on, February to April uh, 1996, 21 years ago, essentially going into the villages and towns in our area of operations that were saturated with shell fire, helicopter gunship attacks, um, fast jet aircraft attacks like F-16s and the Israeli Air Force. The unit history records that approximately 120,000 separate attacks took place in a like a four or five week, week period at, at, at the you know at the, at the actual climax yeah. of that operation and we spent that time you know with the engineers with uh, diesel generators and consoles cutting down into the twisted metal and the rubble of these houses and pulling out um, the bodies of the elderly whole families children sometimes survivors helping the red cross to get, the red crescent to get them out it was literally murder and mayhem and for me as a young guy uh, from Dublin it was my first exposure to violence on a very very large scale so you know growing up near Dublin airport in Finglas you see aircraft taking off and landing all the time but Lebanon was the first place I saw an aircraft coming out of the wadi below us Mm. and you think my god that's a bit dangerous and then you realise well not only is it dangerous but there's a guy in that aircraft who's using all of his intelligence his skill as a as a as an aviator, all of the technology that's there at his disposal to kill and injure, and it's a free for all. There's no rules, and that's when you really appreciate 
the peace. And you also understand what those unfortunates who are walking across Europe, you, you understand what they're trying to escape. Yeah. And you understand why people are drowning in the Mediterranean to escape from this. And Irish people, like our brothers and sisters in the Middle East, we're very family oriented. If our children were exposed to that kind of level of violence, you know, I know for a fact that if Irish people really understood the role that Shannon is playing in in in, in the destruction of stability in the Middle East and elsewhere, they, they they wouldn't they would ask our public representatives to 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 bring it to a close or you know come up with some other arrangement. We you know we need to really leverage our influence with with our American friends to 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 try and get them to understand that you know violence. The approach taken by the United States in the Middle East is not working. The European Union had a much better approach in the Middle East. They, they, they referred to it as the zone of seduction. They used trade, uh, investment, positive reinforcement to try and persuade regimes around the Mediterranean, uh, you know, from Egypt to Libya to Tunisia, Algeria, you know, using positive reinforcement to try and get them to, you know, reform, become more democratic, more uh, pro-social and that that takes a long time it's slow and it's painful but it's far better than the 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 military what was supposed to be a surgical intervention and it, it, it had the opposite effect it has turned the middle east into a, a cauldron which may ignite a, a much what benefits pro- america from doing from taking that sort of stance well i think you know to be really cynical they they want control of the region and its and its um carbon deposits its its gas oil that's what they want and yeah. that's what russia wants that's why russia's involved but the use of violence by the united states you know to project its power uh it has cost them a great deal of money like I said, $14 trillion. But they've got very little out of it. If you look at the Russians, for a tiny investment, a couple of helicopters supporting Assad, maybe five, six, seven thousand 7,000 troops, you know, like peanuts, they have achieved, Sergei Lavrov and Vladimir Putin have achieved international leverage and influence in the region far greater than that of the Americans at the moment. They're calling the shots. And, um, and that's... You know, that that's not good for Europe because Vladimir Putin has been rewarded for his modest military intervention. So he will be encouraged to do the same in Central Europe and in the Baltic states. So, you know, that's why I'm saying we are entering into a period of unprecedented instability in, in our lifetime. Uh, and probably we'll see a scale of conflict uh, either in Europe or in, or in Asia that hasn't been seen in, in a generation. You know, the way we're in, we're in the social media age now where <coughs> when we see pictures of uh, refugees dying in, 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 the, in the Mediterranean and then we, we have kind of one side of the spectrum on social media sympathising and then we have the other side where it's like, no, don't let them in. How, how can we stop that? But that's the politics of fear and that's the kind of polarisation that, that comes with it. I mean, austerity allowed for people like Trump and Brexit to take place. And, you know, I'm, I'm amused in Irish media at, uh, you, you take a publication like the Irish Times that I have contributed to over the years. I'm very proud of my association with the Irish Times. But the Irish Times, from an editorial perspective, was 
very much a cheerleader for the property boom and the ethical and intellectual failures of the Celtic Tiger. And it has also been uh, an unfailing uh, cheerleader for austerity and austerity measures. It's fiscally, financially, a very, very conservative newspaper. And yet they express surprise then at the advent of Trump. They're kind of scratching their heads and go, well, where did Trump come out of? And I'm I'm amused that the, the editorial team at the Irish Times can't see the connection between their support for austerity and throughout, not just in Ireland, but throughout Europe, and then the rise of the far right and populist movements, people like Marine Le Pen, Jobbik yeah. uh, in Hungary, uh, our friend uh, in, in Holland who very narrowly lost the, the vote. Th- those things are inextricably linked. And with that comes the polarised and polarising rhetoric of people like Trump, you know, trying to put a, an immigration ban against people from Muslim countries. And those in Europe who would seek to corral and imprison and detain, you know, these unfortunates who are trying to just escape the kind of horror that I was describing to you earlier. Mm. So it's uh, the, the, the things are not unrelated. But that's what I say. There's been a huge uh, over-reliance in Ireland in the last number of years on economic analysis yeah. to the exclusion of all else. Maybe a little bit of ethical analysis yeah. uh, might, might help. Do you think, just because he's being mentioned a number of times in, in the course of the conversation, but is Putin almost the powder keg of all this? I think Putin is just somebody who, uh, to quote, the, I'm not sure was it Shakespeare, come at the hour, come at the man. But the United States have, since the collapse of the former Soviet Union, they have they, they invested very heavily in a thing called... Uh, uh, Defence Capability Initiative, or DCI. So they, they, they wanted to become the, the, the heaviest hitters on the planet in terms of force projection. So the United States spends more money on on its military spend and on its military capability than anybody else in the world. So they stand not just as an economic colossus, but also as, as the world's most preeminent military superpower. They They outstrip, even if you were to combine... China, Russia, India, uh, you know, all of the Gulf states that have huge military spends, if you added, and the Europeans, if you added them all up, it would still only represent a fraction of what of the, the military capability of the United States. That so that, 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 that's been a decision in the United States. That's the direction that they've taken. Now, what has the outcome of that been? It's been unprecedented instability, as described earlier. And yeah. Vladimir Putin is just a guy uh, who's exploiting that. He's exploiting that dynamic and he's doing it very successfully with uh, his foreign minister and his his cronies in, in Moscow. And, you know, he it's not that he's a mastermind. It's not a conspiracy theory that Vladimir Putin has somehow orchestrated all of this. He has just uh, sought to exploit a dynamic that, I'm sorry to say, has been really pushed uh, by the last number of, um, of US administrations. And I was kind of hoping that after Obama, we might get a president that might, if you like, roll back on that. But I don't think Trump is going to be the president to put that kind of foreign posture into reverse. I think he's going to, I think he's going to accelerate it. I think the Trump administration to me represents somebody pouring petrol on the flames. Yeah. I could could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I hope you have me back in here in five years. Egypt, you got it all wrong. But the language but I, but so far out of out of the Trump administration is crazy. Yeah, well, he's not going to tolerate 
missile capability from North Korea. He won't yeah. tolerate it from, um, you know, Tehran. And how long my, will they and, keep teasing Trump for then? How, will, how long will North Korea just keep well, dangling the carrot? Un, until they can actually execute what it is they want to do. They want to, yeah. they want to hit Japan with a, with a nuclear missile. That's that's the that's the, their end that's, game. The end that's, what that's what they want to do. And if Japan got the defense, the well, back? the the Americans have deployed their missile defense systems in to to Japan, and the, and the Japanese are, are purchasing that capability. Wow, it's crazy, isn't it? That's mental. Yeah, I was in Japan. It's a lovely country. Yeah, <laughs> and I've seen <laughs> the movie, what, was, what was that movie? Uh, America, police, police. You know the one about the the satire on. Team America, is it the puppets? Uh, the, yeah, the team, team America. America. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, that, that's what's after happening. The world has become Team, yeah. America. team America, World Police. You know, it's a good way of putting it. I thought you were talking about Lost in Translation. Yeah, in Japan, I'd prefer that. <laughs> yeah, I'd prefer yeah, if yeah. That was what the outcome was. But no, but but it, like we are living in very uh, uncertain, febrile times. Yeah. Was it the, is it the Chinese or Japanese? May you live in interesting times. The Chinese, the Chinese I believe, yeah. yeah. May you live in interesting times. And yeah. that's what, precisely what we're doing now. But look... How, does China provoke anybody? Well, China, similarly to the United States, has increased its spend on military. It's it's building naval bases all around the world. You the, never hear them in wars or anything, do you? Or well, they're, but they're uh, there. Am the, I naive the, to that? The, um, the Chinese have built a huge naval base uh, in the Horn of Africa. They've They've built one uh, with the permission of the Indians, um, the Indian government in in Asia. So they're in the same way that the European Union is is increasing its military integration and spend. The Chinese have also increased their 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 military spend in order to try and mirror, if you like, the yeah. the, the international posture of the of the United this States. There's kind and of no difference in kind of colonial empires. Yeah. Look, we, we you should again. Part of the problem of having economists on all the time uh, is that they don't necessarily look at, at what's happening in the world, actually on the ground. In Australia, for example, the US Air Force now have a permanent presence in Australia for the first time since World War II. And they have extended the length of the runways uh, in Australian Air Force bases in northern Australia in order to take... Um, the the largest and most sophisticated of of US military aircraft. Now, why would the Americans spend that money in that area yeah. and invest in that? We're going to see a confrontation between China and other international powers in the in the in the South China Sea. You have this concept in American strategic posture called the Asia Pivot, where they're now moving their focus away from the Middle East and now looking at Asia as being the preeminent and emerging threat to US. Uh, international interests in, in the foreseeable future. That it's all very cheerful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is, yeah. It's just fascinating well, it though, is, like, yeah. to think that America is in Australia now. Like, that, the, that's the first scenario yeah, like, time. Like the entire thing is just, and it is that whole, it's almost like this giant moving game of chess. Like, it's like that board game Risk. That's it, yeah. yeah, yeah. They, yeah. It's just like colonial empires yeah, only just, Donald Trump has his hands on the controls now. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and it's not, and it's not just in your living room. It's in, yeah. it's real. Yeah. It's at thirty-five thousand feet as we yeah. speak. You know, moving. But look, um, we, w- w- as as a nation, though, we 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 have something positive to bring to the table in terms of our own history, our own understanding of conflict. Um, we need um, some kind of a change. At our, you know, hopefully the next general election will will begin to see 
a throughput of, of new people and the next generation of Irish politicians who'll be confident enough to, to bring our perspectives into Europe, into, you know, our, our partners in Britain and the United States to say, look, guys, you know, yeah. you know, somebody like the role that Switzerland played in the Second World War. I think we have the potential to do something really positive at that level. With by, our history, is it? Yeah. And by being neutral and being, you know, saying, look, guys, there are better ways of, of, of dealing with these problems and these threats than, you know, the use of preemptive force. But having said that, you know, the United States will respond and say, well, you know, what do we do then about the, the threat posed by North Korea? What do we do about the threat posed by Iran? They're, they're very difficult questions, but I just would be worried about somebody like Donald Trump yeah. uh, being in the driving seat to address them. Yeah, he just reminds me of, you know, on Top Gear, the way Jeremy Clarkson just shouts power as yeah. his answer to everything. Like, you know what I mean? That's just Trump to me. Like, um, just random. Yeah. Besides obviously being a, you know, able to intrigue us and scare us scared of Jesus <laughs> out of us with all this stuff um, you do a lot of work for uh, disability rights yeah so um, I have four kids 16 15 12 and 9 and one of my sons he's, uh, he's a neuromuscular disease Owen he's 15 and uh, he's a wheelchair user he's partially sighted um, the disease thankfully is uh, stable he's, he's plateaued so he hasn't lost any function in the last couple of years but uh, so this would have been my first uh, direct experience of disability as, as his carer and um, over the last number of years with austerity and the cuts to health um, Owen's services have been almost completely um, obliterated so he no longer gets the kind of uh, physio occupational therapy, speech therapy, hydrotherapy, all of those. He, he no longer gets um, that level of support to the extent that he needs it. And uh, he's suffering as a consequence. And I know that there's 600,000 people in Ireland, 600,000 people who are disabled or carers in the state. Um, and like that's, that's the experience. And, and it's through no fault of the nurses, the physios, the doctors, the medics, the consultants. It's not their fault. This is a deliberate government policy to prioritise banking debt over the welfare and needs of the most vulnerable in Irish society. And so that has, to use a term that is no longer popular, that has radicalised me. Mm. I mean, I'm a retired army officer. I should be the most conservative person in the room. I should be the most conservative person on the airwaves. But because of what I've seen happen to my son... And I'm terrified for his future. You but know, your, your mm. son and myself, in in in, in, mm. in certain respects, in in everyday society, in my opinion, are second class citizens. In that, we have to fight for everything. We mm. have to fight for access. Mm-hmm. We have to fight. Like I, I remember years ago having to fight to get my wheelchair serviced when my front caster was hanging off, mm. but I couldn't. I couldn't. I had no mobility, and I was like two or three weeks waiting for it to get it serviced. Yeah. It's. And that's all because of, as you said, the austerity. It's crazy. And cuts. And like, and you, I'm sure you're, this is an experience that you're all too familiar with. Like if Owen wants to go into town on his power chair, because of the cuts, Booterstown Dart Station is not manned. So we have to ring the day before. We have to ring Pierce. And sometimes you get a positive response. And sometimes you get a porter or someone who doesn't know what you're talking about. And they, they can be very aggressive and rude on the phone. Like, can you imagine if, because you were gay, or if you were a Muslim, that you had to ring uh, Pierce Street 
dart station the day before you want to travel into town. I'm sure Panty Bliss would have uh, a march, and quite rightly, of hundreds of thousands of concerned citizens down Grafton Street uh, if he had to ring the train station every day to, to just to get into town or if he couldn't get up O'Connell Street or, you know, pass through the Lewis Works because he was gay, quite rightly, there would be a huge outcry. But because my son has a disability, um, it's just considered, well, that's just put up with it. Yeah. And it's getting worse. It has deteriorated for him and for all the other kids and young adults and, and carers like him. It's And so uh, I've become, if you like, radicalised by that. Um, you know, I was so angry when I saw the wheelchair users outside uh, Leinster House. I think it was last September, October. They did the sit-in, you know, outside yep. Leinster House. Mm. You know, if I had been elected to the Senate or if I am ever elected, to, I will say, come in to Leinster House. Come in in your wheelchairs. Come in as my guests. Yeah. And then we won't... F- I'm gonna, I was going to use a bad yeah. word there. Get and then we won't leave. Go ahead. And then we won't leave. Yeah. Let them throw us out. I wouldn't have yeah. them out in the street outside. And to see Andy Kenny coming out in his unctuous tones, you know, oh, you're... You know, I do the Oliver Callan on it. Oh, you were here all night in your wheelchairs. Yeah. And well done. You know, really... Patronising patronising and has done very little um, I challenged Enda Kenny personally at a lunch a media lunch a couple of years back I asked him Would, can you guarantee that you will stop inflicting cuts on people in wheelchairs and carers and people with disabilities and he said I'd, his, his exact words were I don't have a crystal ball I can't tell you what I'm going to do next which I thought was a rather cynical response and then his spokesperson the government spokesperson told the assembled media that I, I just had a personal issue and I mean, that's when I thought, really, you know, Ireland's public discourse is upside down. But it's like what you've, I think what you've said, the example you use with Panty Bliss is something I've never really heard before. And I think it's brilliant in that Panty Bliss, the Panty effect, I suppose, from her speech um, in the Abbey Theatre. And, you know, it got seen by millions across the world, celebrities all over the world retweeting it and stuff like yeah. that. And that had the, the effect, the desired effect she needed. But, it's like they don't, people don't care. Yeah, but look, the, the marriage equality referendum and, and it was was brilliant. And Panty Bliss is absolutely wonderful. Don't get me wrong. But what we did for our LGBT brothers and sisters, we need to do it for our disabled yeah. brothers and sisters. And we didn't vote yes for marriage equality because we were going to do them a favour. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We did it, it because right. it's the right bloody thing to do. And we should do the right thing by, um, by our disabled and, and carers and... And I know disabled isn't the right word. People, just people who are different through yeah. no fault of their own, through yeah. no... Yeah. Like our LGBT brothers and sisters, it's not a choice. It's not a lifestyle choice. It's, it's the way you are. You're, born, You're yeah. different. And we respect that difference. We recognise it and, and try to cater for it. But when it comes to people with so-called disabilities, they're completely... You know, it's medieval here. And, you know, I wrote... I, I did a speech in the Senate campaign where I took some of the phrases that Panty Bliss had used, you know, I said, you know, when I look at my son, I check myself. And I wonder, you know, where will he be in, um, when I'm gone, when I'm dead, where will my son live? Who'll toilet him? Who'll lift him in the mornings? Who'll dress him? Who'll put their hands on him the way I do? But I have to check myself and I have to check my anger when I look at somebody like Leo Varadkar. Or when I look at Simon Harris or when I look at Enda Kenny, I have to check myself and check my anger because I know that uh, things are deteriorating and getting worse. So I remember using those phrases and using those words and I was told 
um, that I was being exploitative, that, um, you know, I shouldn't do this, that it was somehow inappropriate to kind of piggyback on the, um, the, the, the wonderful campaign that we had and dynamic towards equality um, towards the LGBT our, our, our community in that way and then somehow it was wrong or distasteful to take that sentiment and, and use it to describe the situation that confronts people like my son or, or you or you know all of us as we're getting older you know we're going yeah. to find um, access supports just to live in your home with a bit of dignity you know it's the same challenge but they can't even ratify the disability rights bill for 10 well, years well it's not that they can't they won't they won't that's what I mean ten, sorry yeah. wrong choice of word yeah, but and 10 yeah. years I know and I know. North Korea have ratified it <laughs> what? North Korea have ratified this that, yeah. uh, that our government won't ratify are but, you joking? And it, yeah, what, is there any specific reason? Because any time I see the government talking about not ratifying it, they they say language they use as well, we have accepted it. Yeah, you've accepted it, but you haven't signed it into law. Is there any specific reason as to why they won't? Well, they won't do it because of cost. And, you know, they have lobby groups like IBEC and others in all the time. You know, there's an open door for them. But for the disabled and for the groups that represent them, the government knows. They, they just ignore them or they don't give them as much you know the financial services sector banking uh, even the vintners get more traction with government than the disabled because at the end of the day the government knows that people with disabilities so called and carers are so exhausted and and worn out just trying to get the caster on the wheelchair fixed or trying to get you know uh, arrange for you to get the, the feckin' dart into town. They know that we're, it's very difficult for us to mobilise and and to really, you know, get together. But I think there is, is such a large community, 600,000 at least, that even if we were to form a political party, it, it might shake things up. Because you're competing against interests that are there. You know, the lobby groups and the, and the politically appointed advisors that people like Enda Kenny and other ministers have these behind the scenes people you know who, who what are their connections what are their interests and what lobby groups do they open the door to why is it so difficult um for such you know and it, it's it's not rocket science you know investing in supports for people who are different by way of disability or the elderly or so on is going to save the state billions but it's not that they can't do it they won't do it because there's, there's a cost attaching a short-term cost and they won't invest. Have any of the, the, the I, I can't remember who the Minister for Disabilities is going to. Finian McGrath. Finian McGrath. Have Finian McGrath or any of the others ever even extended an olive branch of some sort and said, talk to us? No. N- nothing at all. And Finian McGrath has a child with a disability. Yeah. No, in fact, um, this campaign around my son, um, which... I did, you know, for a lot of soul searching and 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 talk with discussion with Owen. Like he's he's par- he's bought into he's part and parcel of this. Um, like it has been a very high profile campaign over the last number of years, and yeah. so. And but you shouldn't have the campaign. And for in it. that time, um, one or two exceptions, Colm Keaveney, who uh, failed to be re-elected, was was one person who actually picked up the phone and rang me and said, "Is there anything I can do?" Can I, and he's not, he doesn't even represent Dunleary Rotdown. Yeah. Um, but, the, you know, no politician, apart from him, 
has ever picked up the phone, even though this is a very high profile campaign, and ever said, "Well, are you all right? Is there anything we can do?" So or not? No. Not, e- not even the guys no, with the right down. No, the, not interested. That's <laughs> um, and you know that's and that for me has been a bit of a wake up call because these people are a lot of them are sociopaths. They're it's it's all about the pursuit of power. It's a game. Yeah. They're not really all that interested in in the day to day lived experience of of their constituents or you know, they're not like I often wonder whose interests are served by um you know, you look at the policy decisions taken by governments in the last while with austerity and bailing out the banks. Uh one of the things that was great in the army was we took an oath of allegiance to uphold the constitution. I think our politicians should take an oath of allegiance, a solemn oath of allegiance to to uphold the public interest. Absolutely. And if they're found yeah. in breach of that, that they could be impeached. Um, because, you know, many of the public policy decisions that have been implemented and taken by by the last government in particular uh, have not been in the public interest. If, if we did that, we'd have no government. We'd be a revolving dollar. We'd have no dollar. Maybe it might lead towards the, the new politics that we're all that so, we're hungry, being told that we're about. so hungry for, you know? Absolutely. Um, it's crazy. You, you mentioned that you, you went for... Um, a seat in the, the the upper house. Have you intentions to maybe try again? Or oh, absolutely, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, for the next general election, whenever it comes, I'm I'm going to go again because I, I absolutely have to for for own. And again, like the only reason my my sole motivation is to do something positive for my son and pe- kids and adults and carers like myself. That's the, the sole motivation. I don't have any dynastic connections. You know, I don't yeah. have any relatives who are politicians. I'm not a member of any political party. Um, have you been approached? Uh, no, actually, <laughs> I haven't. Uh, but you know, uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll look forward to keeping an eye on that, and um, we'll definitely be rowing in behind you. You talk a lot of sense, to be perfectly honest. Um, Thanks very much. And compared to some of the, well. Keep it polite, will we? What? Just some of the nonsense you hear out oh of the other side. Like, yeah. um, it's alarming, even that the, the guys in your own constituency haven't, in any way, reached out. To be honest, that that speaks loudly to me. Um, Sad. But, yeah, um, and I know, obviously, from I, kn- you know, I know, I know, councillors don't really write down have reached out to me, but it's merely it's like I actually got a phone call today. To help, them with a, to help them with a campaign so if I can help you in any way I'm gladly gladly put me down forward for you and help you any way I can great thanks stuff. very much um, well Tom look it's been great talking to you um, I, I've loved it it's, it was a little bit different than I thought it would be mainly because I'm now going home to you know build a bomb shelter essentially <laughs> 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 out the back <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah convert me shed um, but no, loads of beans yeah but I've absolutely loved it um, you're on Twitter and all that if people aren't following you where can they or yeah. where can they hear more from you uh, at Tom Clonan perfect on Twitter or you'll see my stuff in the journal yeah, yeah absolutely and, yeah. Uh, is that weekly uh, most weeks yeah there you go <laughs> most weeks yeah. <laughs> great one on Martin McGuinness yeah, yeah um, thanks very much but look again thanks so much for coming into us Dr. No, Tom Clonan welcome. it's a pleasure and delighted to I've had the opportunity to chat to you. Deadly. Great stuff. Thank you. Very interesting, articulate individual. Didn't want it then. Would have loved another half hour, 45 minutes. Would have, and you could easily have done it. Yeah. But um, 
was getting an, I was getting enraged towards the end about the disability stuff. And I'm rightfully so, like yeah. it's insane. Like and and I know it's I take it for granted, like and I mean like I've travelled with you, I've mm. hung out with you and all that, so I've kind of And seen, it's quite straightforward. Yeah, like it's it's not too bad. But we but had we had uh hidden histories Donald Fallon on. Yeah. And Donald works for he's either a curator or works for the Little Museum of Ireland. Yeah. Down the tours. Down the tours and stuff. But I years ago I I love Christy Brown's writing and stuff like that and some of his artwork considering he done it with his left foot was remarkable. Yeah. And the Little Museum of Ireland had a tour or had an exhibition of Christy Brown's yeah. work. And I seen it in the Irish Times in the ticket and I was like, Lovely Jesus, I'll I'll head to that. But sometimes sometimes if if I'm looking to do something like that, go to the theatre or go to a gig or comedy or whatever, and it's the venue, like I'll be like, I don't know what it is, I'll have a feeling and I'll say to myself, oh, no, of course it's wheelchair accessible, I'll just get tickets. But the Little Museum of Ireland, I think the word little had me put off a bit and I said to myself, right, I'll ring ahead. But sure, look, Christy Brown's a wheelchair user course is going to be accessible, it's an exhibition on his life. Ring them up. I said, "How's it going? I'm a wheelchair user. Just, just going, going to go to the Christy Brown exhibition tomorrow night. Is, is everything okay? Um, accessible was. No apologies. Um, we're not accessible. I was like, excuse me, you're not accessible for an exhibition on a wheelchair user's life. And they're like, that's, that's mad. No, now they that what? And I don't blame them. No, they had. Poor. They're in a building where it's on this. You, you know, you can't touch list. Yeah, and. What we talked about in the interview with Tom is in relation to disability rights. If the government ratified and signed this disability rights and enacted it, things like that wouldn't yeah. be a fucking problem. I mean, Stockholm, or not Stockholm, Sweden, the whole country of Sweden, one year, I think it was 2015 or 2014, had a year of access for all. Yeah. So everywhere had one year, if they weren't accessible for wheelchair users, whether that be a ramp or a, a toilet, they had a year to get that accessible and now Sweden is 100% accessible everywhere you go so it's not impossible it's not, not no of course it's not impossible but you're going to have you're probably going to have companies that oh, are yeah, going to they don't want to spend the cash they don't want to spend the cash so that's all there is but you know just I mean? enforce it and find them and like the, you, you will hear people saying oh sure look we might get one wheelchair user every three years if I look that, that's not the point yeah but that it, is not the point like. but the, these situations as well I mean if if I remember when I had a partner, um, it can be awkward yeah. when you're going out. Like if I was to go on my own somewhere and I wasn't accessible, I get over it. Yeah, Instantly I get over it. I might have a bit of a moan and say that's a disgrace or whatever, but ultimately I feel helpless in that at that moment of time. I can't change the situation. Mm. But when you're with someone, if, you're, if I was with you or I was with one of the lads, you'll just say, oh look, don't worry about it. But when you're with a girl or your partner or whoever yeah um, it can put you in a situation where they wanted to go there but you're stopping them from going there I get you do you know what I mean yeah. and it can put you it can make you feel a bit this is my fault yeah that's and, and see it's, it's it's things like that obviously that like I, I would take it for granted obviously of course, do you know what I mean and a lot of the listeners will take it for granted um, but I was saying to you I would love and 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 Tom said it brilliantly about, you know, the Panty effect almost, where Panty Bliss stood at the Abbey Theatre 
and said um and had this rouse I can't believe, I can't remember the name of it but it was a rousing speech and a rousing kind of uh I suppose calling of the Irish public nearly to say you know are you saying that I can't marry someone that I'm in love with because I was born like this yeah and we passed it we didn't like Tom said the country didn't pass it because we felt sorry because uh, we're doing them a favour for we, the LGBT we community we've right to do we've done it because it's a right, you're right it yeah. should be my right to get into a building yeah. it should be my right to be able to get access yeah. to travel wherever the hell I want in this country I live in this country I'm born and raised in this country so it got me kind of going well are the public not going to help in terms of not something to the scale of home to vote or anything like that because yeah. there's nothing to vote but I think we need to mobilise people on the say, streets. Uh, not, not necessarily home to vote, but, you know what I mean, home is where the heart is, so to speak. Mm. And, like, how can people feel comfortable in their home if it feels like their home doesn't want to welcome them? Uh, 100%. Do you know 100%. what I mean? I feel like now, I've been talking to Tom t- towards the last bit of our interview, I feel like, at this moment in time, I want to handcuff myself to the doll until they yeah. ratify that. That's how I feel now. I, I think we can... Do something. I'll have a little chat with you. I think we can do something. Yeah, but I, I would love. I, have an idea. I wouldn't. I don't want it to be a, a token gesture of a little. You know, poor poor people with disability. Yeah, we'll go out, and it's a couple of hundred. No, I'd love O'Connell Street to be brought to a standstill. Jammed between twelve o'clock on a Saturday in the summer. Yeah, get fucking everyone mobilize it. Social media campaign yeah. and have the city to a standstill and yeah. make the media report it and make. Yeah. Uh, TD is take no and say look if Sweden can make access for all in 2014 with an ultimatum you'll be fined why the fuck can't this beautiful country do it Yeah, it, it's absolutely you have to wind, wind them you up I, big can time. T- I can tell you around up because yeah. I swear them. no yeah I know I'm sorry for swearing but it's after getting no, to me a bit no it's passionate man and that's <laughs> you know what I mean um, how can how can someone say you deserve. It's like I said to Tom. It's like sometimes you feel like a second class citizen. Yeah. Why should I? Why should, why should I you have access to somewhere and yeah. I can't? Yeah. Because I'm on four wheels. And as you said, like the, like the example of the the Christie Brown exhibition in the Little Museum. And it's not that we're blaming the people of the Little Museum. As you said, it's no, no. It's it's. But the the point is, like, the legislation. The point is, I would have no interest in that, and yet I could breeze into it now, but at all. And somebody who has a genuine interest in it isn't welcome because, you know, that building is apparently more important. Yeah, exactly. Do you think, right, do you think the leaders of 1916, with their proclamation of equality and look after the children of this Cherish all children. Cherish of of everyone. Do you think they would accept that me wanting to go to the Little Museum of Ireland and wanting to go to a Christy Brown Mm. exhibition, do you think James Connolly is proud that I can't get into that building. No. A hundred years after what he wanted to do and wanted he what he wanted to achieve. Of course he didn't. It's draconian laws and legislation. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's an absolute it's fucking ri- farce. It's, oh God, look, that building is so lovely and it was built 200 years ago and we must preserve it. All right, yeah. Um, I am in a wheelchair and there are six steps going up to it. Any chance we can do something about it? No, we're preserving that building. Right, okay. But preserving for who? Exactly. Preserving it because it's, you know, 
oh look how pretty it is it's, it's a few steps we're not asking you to change the structure lads it's a few bleeding steps but you know what was the funny and, and uh, contradictory uh, response I got as well and again not from them yeah. but the legislation so that building that they're in they can't add anything to it yeah. ramp wires or whatever which is outrageous but they're looking to purchase the building next door and if they purchase the building next door which is not on a listed protection list yeah. it's not on a protection list they can add a stair lift to the building next door right but just not the building they're currently in. Right, so if they, but so that I, whole row of houses... Am I naive then to think, fair enough, okay, right, even if it was a case, let's just say there's no way around the legislation, which there is, but let's just say there's not. Can they not put in... You know the way you'll see... You think about it at a concert, the way the wheelchair section would have a ramp going yeah, up yeah. if it's on the pitch, them temporary kind of ramps. Yeah. Surely, because that's of not course. a permanent structure. Of course. Why can't one of them just be put in? Of course. You're not, you're not disturbing the structure. Exactly, yeah. You're not disturbing it at all. And then you, all you need is a, t- a, a, a ground floor toilet. Yeah. You know, it's just farcical. It's farcical that this day and age, you can't do it. Like, even in America, it's good. Like, America, mm. you go everywhere. You don't have to plan ahead. You can go to the toilet. It's easy. Yeah. There's ramps everywhere. It, the, the, the public, the general public are quite patronising. Yeah. In that, if I'm with you, as you know, when we went to America, they look at you yeah. when talking about me. Yeah, which I always find weird, and I'm always just kind of, I just look at you then as if yeah. to say. But I was in America you know? with, with my ex-girlfriend, yeah. and we were in New York, and um, we're queuing up for the Statue of Liberty. Um, do, do you need to go on the lift um, and, and talking to her? Yeah, yeah. Do you need the lift, or do you, it's like, hold on, I was like, sorry, I need the lift, <laughs> she doesn't. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's. I probably would have just got the lift because I'm lazy. <laughs> yeah. But you know what I mean? Um, I have an idea. We'll we'll talk about it because um, I think there's something that we can. We but can there was I just I must know there was uh, rather the disability rights uh, hasn't been ratified yet. Yeah. So technically speaking, I've no rights in this country. Okay. Um, but there was a march last Thursday to Dalaran. Um, two Thursdays ago. Two Thursdays ago at eleven a.m. on a Thursday morning, which to me like. Not ideal. For it's people. not ideal, um, and as well, I don't like. I only got a day or two's notice of it, yeah. you know. Um, so why not have one? Over Saturday. Of a Saturday, why not the LGBT community help out the disabled community? And they, they we seen how brilliant the S quality coordinator. I can't remember his name, but if he, yeah. if anyone knows him, please let me know. A quality round two, lads. It starts here. But why can't he? Why can't we? ask them for their assistance why can't we ask Panty Bliss you know we helped you in, in a certain respect a certain respect not because we felt sorry for you because you deserve that equality now can you help us this, the people with disabilities in this country because yeah. we are at the moment we've got we're second class citizens because at the moment lads it's not can't it's won't exactly and that should never be the case no quite simply we'll revisit this crime we will we that was will. a rant it's all right, man. I do it quite often. <laughs> um, but we will revisit it. I have an idea. But in the meantime, lads, that was Dr. Tom Clownan. This was WTS Pod Chapter 93. And you can check out all other 92 chapters that came before this on Stitcher, on Podbean, on iTunes, Podcast Republic, Podcast Addict, anywhere and everywhere there's a podcast. Just search WTS Pod and we're there. Check out WTSPod.com facebook.com forward slash WTS pod Ireland 
or go to Twitter and we're at WTS Pod. I'm at Dan Joe Murray. I'm at Mary Romania. This has been What's the Story Podcast from the Fabulous and Famous Fitzpatrick Castle. You can check out FitzpatrickCastle.com for more. Don't forget to buy tickets to the live show May 18th, Thursday. It's going to be a cracker. But lads, until next week. Clear eyes. Full hearts. Can't lose. Too sweet. Too sweet.